Good morning. Well, we are continuing to study in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And I promise you today, Lord willing, that we will get out of chapter 1. Actually, we will finish chapter 1, Lord willing. But out of verse 5. But before we turn there, as you were madly turning there, um, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you, which is kind of the foundation for this uh, message this morning. I've titled my message. I don't usually title my messages, but I did today. It's called, The Next Time by Fire. I want you to think about that. The Next Time by Fire. Okay? And you'll see how that fits as we go. Luke chapter 18, I'll just read it to you. It's a parable of the Lord Jesus, and it says, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he really find faith on earth? It's a very simple story. It's a story of a widow, and this widow has an adversary. We don't know much about the adversary, what the issue was, but she, is com- she comes to this judge seeking justice. She wants justice. The other character in the story is an unjust judge, and he doesn't care about justice. He is not moved by a fear of God, and he is not moved by compassion for people. But her constant, continuous appeals finally get to him so that he finally gives her the justice that that she deserves. And Jesus is quick to point out from this story that God the Father is not like this judge. He is a just judge. He will avenge us of our adversaries, and he will do so quickly. If you have suffered in your life an injustice, it is not because God does not care. If you are waiting for justice in your case, he says he will avenge his own elect who cry out to him, and he will do so speedily. So the word avenge, what does it mean, avenge? It's a very strong word, and it is closely related to words like vengeance, revenge, payback, punishment. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, we read that God is going to repay those who trouble you. He is going to take vengeance on unbelievers, 
and he is going to punish them. We see that in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's the passage that we're going to be studying today. The Bible says of the Lord, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And so I want to think about this before we get into our passage this morning, because it is a subject that is um, not talked about a lot. It's a subject that most people try to avoid. That is the vengeance or the wrath of God. It's something that most people don't like talking about and don't like studying about. But it's in the scripture. And we want to look at what the scripture has to say. And so I want to do, do a quick scriptural journey. <clears throat> and I want to start with one man, first of all. And the man is Noah. Many years ago, God looked down upon planet Earth. And in Genesis chapter 6, this is what he says about what he saw. It says in chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I want you to pay attention to what is said next. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the reason I pointed those phrases out to you before I read them was this. Many people think about the wrath of God and they think, oh, God is vindictive. He is, uh, every once in a while, he has a temper tantrum and he just blows up out of control. That is clearly not what you see here. What you see here is that the Lord is thinking through the issues about man, mankind, and what he must do because of sin. And it grieves him at the very core of his being. It says that he is grieved in his heart. He is the judge of all the earth. And the Bible says that he, the judge of all the earth will do right. Whatever needs to be done as a judge, he is not an unjust judge. He is just. He is fair. He is right. We read further in Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed... It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And God destroyed the earth with a flood. God is just. And because he is just, his justice demanded that action be taken. In this case, it was the destruction of the whole world, apart from the eight um, people in Noah's family. And so, I want to say this. God is just, and his justice demanded punishment. The violation of the laws of God required it, and the world was ripe for destruction. 
But it's an interesting thing, and I want to point this out here and in a couple of other places. The Bible is very clear about this. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. It's a very important point. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So he spared Noah and his family, eight souls out of all the people who lived on the earth at that time. And so there are two attributes that we see from this passage of Scripture. The first one is the justice of God. God must judge sin if he's going to be a just judge. And he must judge for sins which are crimes against God. The second attribute we see is the grace of God. And it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it underscores the fact that God delivers the righteous from judgment. And God delivered Noah and gave him peace. Okay, fast forward. The next story that I want to bring to your attention is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Over time, as the population grew on the earth, we come to Abraham's generation. And there were cities at that time um, that were famous for their sins. The term sodomy, which we use today, is a term that refers to perverted sexual behavior. And it is named after the city Sodom. That's where it came from. A city full of sexual perverts. But we also read in Ezekiel about more of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in Ezekiel that these cities were full of pride, full of idleness, full of bread, that means gluttony, and they had no compassion for the poor and for the needy. So Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, it says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, And because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so God is going through a period of judgment, uh, uh, trying to discover. I mean, he knows, but he is going down to discover uh, uh, with certainty, as it were, that these sins are true. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, he cries to the Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And what is the answer to that question? Absolutely. Of course he'll do what is right. So the Lord said to Abraham, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous people within the city, then I will spare the place for their sake. Well, Abraham went and appealed more. And you know the story. You've read it before. He gets all the way down to ten people and says, Lord, would you spare the city if there are just ten righteous people within its borders? And the Lord said, yes, even for ten. There weren't even ten. Because the Lord destroyed destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, I want to point out a couple of things to you. First of all, God is not vindictive. He is not frustrated. 
He is not out of control. He has heard the cry of the oppressed. I want you to go back to that first story that we read. There was a woman. She was a widow. She had an adversary. She was under oppression, and she appealed to a judge, an unrighteous judge, who eventually, out of frustration, gave her um, freedom from her adversary. Right? God is not like that judge. God is a righteous judge. And he listens to the cry of the people who suffered at the hands of the people from Sodom and Gomorrah. And they cried out to him. And God came. And he, like a a good trial lawyer, he discovered all of the things that were true of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was left with no other choice but to destroy them because of their sin and because of their wickedness. He came as an investigator or as a judge to hear all the facts. He is compassionate in this, in this passage because we see that he is willing to spare the entire city and all of the sinners in it if there are just 50. Really, if there are just 10. He is compassionate. But there aren't even 10. And at the conclusion of his investigation, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah the cities of the plain with fire and with brimstone. God is just, and his justice demands it. The violation of God's law requires it, and the cities were ripe for destruction. But God did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So he spared Lot and his family just a few souls out of all the people who lived in those cities. So once again, we see those same two attributes here in this story. God is a God of justice. He is a just God. And He will punish sin. But He is a God of grace. And God of grace uh, is seen in His deliverance of Lot from the judgment. Okay, let's go into the New Testament. See what the New Testament has to say. See what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about judgment. The Lord promised that He will come again. But we learn from the scripture that his second coming is not for salvation. He came the first time for salvation. He came the first time to die on the cross for our sins. That shows the compassion, the love, the grace, the mercy of God. He came to save. And that offer of salvation still applies to this very day. But his second coming is not for salvation. His second coming is for judgment. And he spoke about a generation to come and how it will be ripe for judgment. And this is what he says. Again, there's two attributes of God clearly seen. It's the justice of God as he pours out his judgment upon the wicked and the grace of God in delivering his own people and giving them peace. That's when we turn now to 2 Thessalonians 1 and beginning with verse 4. So this is where we left off last week. And so Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says this, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Again, Paul is saying, look, you are being troubled. 
You are being persecuted. You are uh, facing tribulation in your life right now. And God is at work. Yes, he is allowing you to suffer and to endure this tribulation, but God is just, and he will see to it that your persecutors will be judged and that you will have peace. You will find peace uh, and rest with him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The wickedness, the violence, the perversion, the laziness, the injustices to the poor and the needy that we experience in our society today all point to one thing, that Jesus is coming again, and that the judge of all the earth will come and he will do what is right. But no one seems to be concerned about judgment. People laugh it off as if it's nothing. He's coming? Really? How long has that been preached? 2,000 years. <laughs> Where's this coming? And, and the Lord says that we'll, in the last days there will be mockers who will say those very things. But just as it was in the days of Noah's generation, and just as it was said of Lot's generation, we can say of our generation, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, they watched the Super Bowl. All these things that just go on our daily living, our daily life. Life continues as normal. And that day will come at such a time as we are not ready. We are not aware. We began our message this morning by looking at the case of the widow who cried to an unjust judge and received relief. And I want to think about this for a few minutes now, that the Lord will judge the world and he will judge it for a number of reasons. And the first one I want to point out to you, and Jake, go ahead and put this up on the screen, if you will, is because of our crimes against one another. For those of you who are believers this morning, the Bible tells us very plainly that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are exempt from the judgment of God. That is the good news. But for those, as, as you look at God looking upon the earth today, and as Jesus said that in the time right before his coming, the world will be like the times of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the time of Noah. It's not hard for us to see, with just taking one sin, the sin of abortion, and seeing the awful effects that that sin has had in the world today. And I want you to think about this one widow that we talked about at the very beginning. One person who cried out to the Lord, Avenge me of mine adversaries. I have been treated wrongly. Avenge me of mine adversary. And I want you to watch that screen. The numbers change as we, as we go through. Since we uploaded the page in just the last couple of seconds, almost 100 children have been aborted in the world today. 
Think about the blood of innocent babies who have been ripped from their mother's wombs through abortion. The National Right to Life Committee reported in February 2014, so a year ago, that the total number of U.S. abortions for the 40-year period since Roe v. Wade in 1973 through 2013, so that 40-year period, was 56,406 I'm sorry, 56,405,766 abortions. I want to put that in perspective. That number is equivalent to one and a half times the population of Canada, the entire country of Canada. That number is equivalent to one and a half times the entire population of California. Since 1980... It is estimated that, the, that worldwide there have been 1.3 billion children aborted. That is nearly four times the population of the entire United States. The unprecedented crime against innocent children is often called the silent holocaust. And it's spoken of as the silent scream. If one widow got the ear of God the Father, what do you think about these millions, hundreds of millions of innocent children whose blood cries out to God? Avenge me. Avenge me of mine adversaries. And as I look at this picture, as this chart, I think about the Lord looking down on earth in Noah's day. And he said because of the violence in Noah's day, he would destroy the world. And before the coming of the Lord, there would be violent violence in the face of the earth. This is just one sin. And of course, connected with this sin is the greediness, the prophet of doctors who are quite happy to murder children. Comes, with this sin comes the, the sexual immorality that, that has often been the cause of people going to this extent and uh, having abortions. Violence is great on the earth. Okay, Jay, you can take the clock down. It's hard to look at the numbers, isn't it? The Lord will judge the world because of our crimes against one another. But the Lord will judge the world because of crimes against Christians. The Bible, uh, or I'm sorry, statistics tell us that Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. In 2010, it was reported that an average of 159,960 Christians worldwide are martyred for their faith each year. The fact is that there is no way for us to know the real number. We, there's no way for us to calculate that total. But it is true, um, as some st- statistics would suggest, that there are probably between two and three Christians killed every minute, every hour, every day, all year long. The Lord will judge the world because of crimes against Christians. Avenge me of mine adversary. 
The Lord will judge the world because of crimes against believers during the tribulation. The book of Revelation speaks of martyrs, and the cry is of the martyrs is heard in heaven. It is the voices of those who uh, were killed because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. They believed the word of God, and they maintained their testimony during the tribulation period. That's still future. And even at that late date, the souls of those who had been slain, the Bible tells us they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? It's a good question. The Lord will avenge speedily. Speedily is a different time to the Lord than to us, I think. But he will avenge. The Lord will avenge and judge the world because of crimes against the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21. I'll read it to you. It says this. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. He owned it. Why shouldn't he get fruit from it, right? And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the vine dressers, when they saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And the people who were listening to this parable replied back, and and they said this, They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. So as you hear this parable, many of you have heard this before have read that parable before, you recognize that God is the landowner. You recognize the patience of God in this parable as he waited year after year for these people to repent, and they didn't. You understand the injustice that occurred, the violence that was shown to the servants of this landowner as he sent servants to collect the fruits that he rightfully deserved. They were killed. They were murdered. And you clearly understand that when God sent his son to this earth, we seized him and we nailed him to a cross and put his hands and his feet uh, on the cross with nails. Since God is a just judge, what must he do with a world that crucified his son? problem is, we were part of the problem, weren't we? You were and I was. We nailed him. There was our sins that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. It is amazing to me, and we often sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That God offers us, his enemies, forgiveness of sins, and a place in heaven with him that Sam talked about this morning. Mansions prepared for us. 
You know, he offers and he extends to every single one of us and every single person on the earth terms of peace. God is not a vengeful God. It is not his desire uh, to slaughter the world. And so he, first of all, offers salvation to whoever believes on him and will receive him as Lord and Savior. The Bible, the most famous verse in all of the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But for those who reject his offer of peace, there is a certain judgment waiting. John 3, just a few verses later, says this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so you say, well, God is going to judge the world. How will he judge the world? In what form uh, will it take? Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, will come again from heaven. In fact, in this passage in Thessalonians, we read this. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels. I I want to point something out here as you read that, because sometimes we skip over the words. Who is the judge here? The judge is Jesus Christ. And it is clear that he is God, because only God can judge the sins of mankind. Second thing we read here is that he comes from heaven. That is the dwelling place of God. Second, or third, I should say, he comes with mighty angels. And listen to what it says. He calls them here his mighty angels. Who create, angels are created beings, created by God. They are God's angels. And yet here it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are his angels. If God created the angels, and here Jesus, it says of Jesus that they are his angels, who is Jesus? He is God. Okay? The angels are created beings. Um, they, he, they come with him. And it's a clear statement, really, in this passage of the deity of Christ. The judgment takes place in this uh, passage we read, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So when is that? When will the Lord Jesus Christ be revealed from heaven? It's not at the rapture. The rapture, he's not revealed to the world at that time. It says of the rapture that he comes in clouds and that those who are dead believers are resurrected. Those who are alive are gathered together and we meet him in the air. And so the first time he comes back, he's not coming to the earth. He's coming to the air and we rise up to meet him. And so just as we saw in the case of Noah, just as we saw in the case of Lot, God delivers the righteous from judgment. And that is what he will do right before the rapture, right before the tribulation as well. And so he is coming. It is a secret calling away of the believers. It, is a, it happens, the Bible tells us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This is his coming for his saints. And every believer will be caught up to meet him in the air. But the event that we're talking about here in 1 Thessalonians is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, when Jesus Christ is revealed to the entire world, Just who he is. He is God. 
When will that take place? That takes place at the end of the tribulation period. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes not for his saints, but he comes with his saints to the earth and he establishes his rightful kingdom, his rightful place on the earth, and he will reign uh, for a thousand years on the earth. And so the next question I have as we look at Second Thessalonians 1 is, how will he judge the world? And verse, seven, verse 8 says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. God made a promise to Noah after the flood. The Lord put a bow in the sky. And some of you who have heard me teach on this before realize that the term that is used for the rainbow is actually a warrior's bow. You may not have known that. And when a hunter would go out and he would hunt for uh, an animal or he would go out to uh, fight in a battle, he would go out with his bow and he would go out with his arrows. And he would take his bow and arrow and he would fire it to kill. Okay? That's the purpose of a bow and arrow, is to kill and to destroy. And at the end of the day, when he'd finished, he would take his bow and there would be a hook in his home as he entered into the home. And he would take that bow and he would hang it upside down in the shape of a rainbow. Okay? And the Lord put in the sky, he promised this to Noah, his bow his warrior's bow, and he hung, he hung it from the clouds, as it were, and he is saying, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. That's the promise. But he will destroy the earth again, not with a flood this time, but with fire. That's where we get the title of the sermon, the next time by fire. How will he judge it? In flaming fire. I want to propose to you something that, as with many prophecies in Scripture that have double fulfillments, there very well may be, in this passage, a double fulfillment. Um, The reason I say that is that the first fulfillment in order will be when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the earth with his saints, and he will destroy all of his enemies, and um, and he will give relief to all of the believers that remain on earth uh, that have gone through the tribulation period. The same event, his coming to the earth with his saints, has actually two outcomes. The first outcome is for unbelievers. They are cast into hell, a place of torment, a place of weeping, and wailing, and gnashing of teeth. The fires of hell will not be extinguished. And for believers, that's the second outcome, uh, we will enter into the millennial rest. It will be a time of peace. It will be a time of deliverance from evil. And the cry that has gone up to the Lord for all of these centuries, avenge me of mine adversary, will finally be answered here with peace. Who will the Lord judge? Well, take a look at... um, Verse 8 again, 
those who do not know God. In Romans chapter 1, we read an interesting account of how the Lord has revealed himself to every single human being on the face of the earth. How has he done that? He has done it by creation. And so as you go out and you see the seasons that repeat over and over again in their time, you see the uh, consistency of the sun from our perspective rising in the east and setting in the west every day. The fact that there is night and day. The fact that God has given abundance uh, of food for us to enjoy. All of these blessings are so obvious that they did not come from us, but they came from somebody so much greater than us that we should recognize that there is a God in heaven. That much we should know. And God has revealed in His creation the vastness of the universe. We put stuff out into space. And they're searching with, with telescopes to the far reaches of space. And they say, we don't see the end of it all. Of course you don't. God is eternal. God is greater than His universe. And He spoke the word and, and it just, you know? And, it, and you can't reach the end of it. Would you expect to find the end of God's creation? Of course not. God has revealed himself in his creation. But God has also revealed himself in the conscience he has given every single person on the face of the earth. I have a little grandson. Um, He's a little bit over a year and a bit. How old is he? 18 months. Okay. I don't know when I first noticed this, and I don't do it very often, but if he's holding something in his hand that he thinks is his, and I take it from him, he's going to let me know in a hurry. Why does he do that? Because that's mine. That's mine. And he knows the injustice of his grandfather taking from his hand the thing that belongs to him. And from the earliest age, we know that. We know that stealing is wrong. And we know that murder is wrong. We know so many things that are wrong. Why? Because God has placed, in a sense, his law in our heart. And our conscience, we know right from wrong. And so we are without excuse. And so God will judge those who do not know him because they have willingly not pursued him. And then it says those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe there is greater judgment for those who have heard the gospel message. Those who have heard of the facts that God sent his son to the cross to die in your place and my place And he paid the penalty for your sins in full. And people hear the gospel message. They realize that their sins can be forgiven and that they can be in a right relationship with God, that they can be reconciled with God. And they say, you know what? I don't want any part of it. And God will judge those people because the gospel is not something to be ignored. The gospel is to be obeyed. It says that here that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God issued the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a command from God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so when a person refuses, it's defiance against God. 
and it must be punished. And the sentence will be carried out, and they will be punished, it says here, with everlasting destruction. That means there is no end to this punishment. It is eternal. It is a destruction, which really means a complete loss of well-being, not annihilation. When God destroys the wicked, when God destroys unbelievers, it's not that they are annihilated, that they no longer exist. They exist all right. But in a place and in a condition of a lack of well-being for eternity, they are not, they are, they will be in a conscious torment forever and forever. You see, God actually gives people what they want. Do you know that? He does. When a person says, I will not have this man reign over me, as the Jews did in Jesus' day, I refuse to let Jesus into my life and to reign over me, the Lord says, okay, then you can be your own God. You can be your own master. See how that goes. Okay? And for eternity, you're your own master. It's not a pleasant thing. They refuse the terms of peace, and so God will give them no peace for all eternity, away from his presence forever. And it says they will never enjoy the glory of his power. So I think that's the first fulfillment of what um, we have here in this passage. I think the second fulfillment of this prophecy occurs at the end of the millennium, when death and hell give up the dead that are in them, And the unsaved stand before God for the final judgment. It is called the great white throne judgment. And they stand before him. And ultimately, they are cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. And there is no escape. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read about this. And it says that uh, talking about how God judges, that he judged the earth once before. Peter says this, for this They willingly forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. He's talking about Noah's flood there, or God's flood, which Noah uh, was saved from. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God is waiting. He's waiting for that last person to trust in him. He is long-suffering. Waiting for repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what is he saying? Everything we see, you're sitting on a chair, you're standing on a floor, there's carpet, there's a building, there's cars out there, there's trees, it's all going to be dissolved. All of it. It's going to melt with fervent heat. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, 
and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Wow. I'm looking forward to that. Paul, then in the final verses of this chapter, encourages the saints in Thessalonica. And I want to end with this encouragement and with this challenge to you today. Paul says that when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth for his millennial reign, he, the Lord Jesus, will be glorified in his saints and he will be admired by all who believe. Why? It's really, really good. It's because Paul had gone to the Thessalonian, to Thessalonica and he had preached the message of salvation and these idolaters had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. They had become Christians and they were saved and their lives were totally and completely transformed. There's glory for God in a transformed life. Okay, We have experienced here the same thing. As the gospel has gone out and it has been preached, people's lives are transformed. Only God can do that. That's, there's glory for God in that just by itself. They took sides with God against themselves. They surrendered their lives to him. And the, um, the Lord will, at that time when he comes uh, to the earth, openly show what he was able to do with such unlikely raw materials. When I look at my life and where I came from, the Lord didn't have much to work with. I'll tell you that. When I look at your lives and some of the, the things that you were involved in in sin, I think, wow, how is God ever going to deal with that? And yet he does. And he transforms completely. And God will put on display every believer that he has ever saved, as someone once said, as trophies of God's grace and will display to the world and to all who are concerned what he can do in transforming a life. There is glory for God in that. The fact that God could save me or save you and use us for his glory is an amazing thing. If Paul's testimony was believed and that will glorify God for all eternity, then it is equally true that if we preach the gospel and the people that we reach out to trust in the Lord, there is glory for God for all eternity in that too. In light of the soon coming of the Lord and the certain judgment that is coming, the question has to be asked, how should we live today? How should we live today? Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12 that he would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, really, I'm left with one question. How can we live today? To glorify God. What can you do today, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, to glorify God? Let me ask you a simple question. If you went out of here today, and you drove down the street, and you saw a building 
and it's on fire. You see this building, it's on fire. And you know that there are people inside this building and that they will perish if you do nothing. And if you do not warn them of the fire that is about to consume them, what will you do? Given that opportunity, what would you do? I actually had that experience one time. I was driving home from a sales call when I was in sales in Vancouver, and I saw a house on fire. I saw smoke ascending. And I thought, there might be people in there. And I drove as fast as I could to get to the home, and sure enough, the house was engulfed in flames. And I ran up to the front door. I was going to bust my way into the house because I was afraid there were people inside who didn't even know the house was on fire. And a neighbor came running out. He says, don't go in, don't go in. He says, there's no one home. I said, (laughs) the house was consumed. But if you had that opportunity today and you saw a house on fire, people inside, and you know for a fact that they would be consumed if you did nothing, what would you do? What would you do? Well, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something. The house is on fire. This earth is ready to be consumed. And people will perish if we do nothing about it. If we do not open our mouths and we do not share the gospel and we do not preach the word of God, they will perish in their sins. Many of you have had the opportunity to be trained in how to uh, teach uh, the word of God, how to share the gospel with others. Don't forget, there are people who are perishing. I'll leave you with this one challenge. C.T. Studd, a 19th century missionary, wrote these words. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. We're almost there, believers. The Lord is coming soon. His judgment is right, righteous, and the world is ripe for it. It's time to win the lost. We'll pray, and then we have a closing hymn. Uh, Let's just uh, look to the Lord. Lord, as we think of this subject of judgment, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet we think of the time in which we live where the gospel is still going out. It is a time when you have um, reserved for your grace to be shown to undeserving sinners where we have the opportunity to preach the gospel and that whoever believes can be saved today. Lord, truly, this is the day of salvation. We pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would flee from the wrath to come. Lord, I I just pray that we might be really moved in our own lives, uh, transformed in our thinking, that we might remember clearly what is about to befall this planet, and be like um, Noah, who spoke to his generation about the world that was about to be destroyed. Let us be bold like he was in preaching to that generation. Let us be bold in preaching to our generation. Lord, I pray that you might allow us to win souls for you, and that you might be glorified in us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.